What's good, anybody out there? This is your old friend, the Crimson Stain, and welcome to the Grave Wax Podcast. It's a very special episode tonight. It's number 13. We're recording on Valentine's Day or Valentine's Night. We had a wonderful day. It's It's got to be the coldest day ever. We're having some snow. I can hear the snow falling on the roof right now. Uh, it was just an excellent, excellent atmospheric day. And uh, now we're going to talk about something we really love because we had this is the 13th episode. We've been doing this almost a year. So it's finally time to do the best horror movie of all time. We're going to be discussing in full detail uh, the 1982 slasher classic Pieces. Now, why is Pieces the best ever? Well, I mean, you just have to really watch it. And uh, if you disagree with this, I mean, you just. There's the door. Tolerance is definitely not a virtue, especially not when we're talking about pieces. Uh, and there's just no dissension allowed. That's 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 fair. I think that's just the fair. So my own experience with pieces must go back at least 23 years or so. Uh, this is back in the VHS era. In fact, it was the time when grocery stores would rent videos. And in fact, there were more grocery stores renting videos that I remember than there were blockbusters around. It was a it was a wonderful, crazy time. And this place, this one store, it was Albertsons, and they just had the most awesome selection of more underground stuff. Uh, and one of the first movies I picked from them was Pieces. And it just so happened that ended up being like the best, craziest film uh, that's never been surpassed ever. Uh, there's a lot of crazy movies I love, but that one's always going to be the best. It's the first and my favorite. And we'll discuss why in extreme excruciating detail it's going to be a blast. Um, you know, when I first uh, got my DVD player, and you know, back in the day, uh, Best Buy had awesome uh, video selection. And when DVDs were just coming out and they had like the, there was a cheap, they had a huge horror section for one thing, but they also had like cheap under five dollar dvd section as well for a time and one of the ones that was there was pieces it was just one of those cheapo what was it diamond was the distributor or whatever they all had that same blue case with the red letters uh but that was one of the ones i picked up uh one of my first dvds probably the first handful of them and i had it forever and it was just uh an awesome thing to have um and i remember when I got my first apartment, like a year or two later, uh, I'd, I'd play it for people, and the first reactions were not great. I'm not gonna lie, there was not a lot of love for this movie. A lot of people thought, "Man, you really, you really killed the party that time uh, you played that movie." And you know, I just persevered. I just knew I was right. And sure enough, uh, as things got even crazier and more and more people would show up, the legend of pieces grew to the point where. People were asking to put on, and we must have had two or three pieces parties after that, uh, and it was it started to be a big hit. And I think it was probably also after Eli Roth had talked about it. I was, of course, I was much cooler than uh, a lot of people knowing about this film before Eli Roth would talk about it. On he talked about it like in pretty mainstream outlets or whatever, but uh, basically, I did. I don't need anyone to tell me. That pieces is the great is the greatest movie, and that's probably why I'm very territorial of it as well. And of course, now in the you know smartphone age or whatever you call it, uh, there's so many there's you can find fandoms for everything, and there's a lot of love for pieces out there. A lot of people uh, really like this film, 
So it's it's popular, but not too popular, right in the sweet spot. And uh, it's great to know there's a lot of people who also love pieces. So uh, with that said, uh, you have to ask yourself, what makes pieces pieces? Uh, and I think when you look at the creative talent behind it, first of all, of course, the time frame as well. Like it was released, uh, first released in Spain in 82. Now, of course, there's a big slasher boom around that time. 1981 was like probably the greatest single year for awesome horror movies. And then, you know, we had a lot of great ones after that as well. So uh, Pieces is just one of the many. It just happens to stand out far more for me than all the others. Uh, But just a great, a great time period for horror movies. And this one is Made in Spain, uh, directed by J.P. Simon. Uh, And also, I think you can't overlook the producer, Dick Randall. And because if, if you look at uh, both Simon's movies and uh, Dick Randall's movies that he produced, and he also directed one, uh, you put them, if you examine them, you're like, well, okay, Dick Randall's movies are always like crazy and sleazy and weird. And uh, J.P. Simon's movies, they they have, uh, even if they're, even if the material is flimsy, uh, it's still well done, at least as well done as it can be, obviously on a budget. And, uh, I mean, he even made a Killer Slugs movie called Slugs, of course. It's great. But even that movie, as crazy as it is, is not as crazy to me as Pieces is. So I think there's something about the synergy between these two people that just happened to create this thing. Now, first of all, also, what is this thing? Why is it so great? And I would say, without getting too pretentious into it, about it, is that it's not, it's not like a spoof. It's not like an outright joke but it's massively hilarious. It's like, you can't really tell how serious they were trying to be, but it appears to be, you know, a serious, a serious, as serious a slasher movie as, you know, The Burning or The Prowler or anything like that. It just happens to have really crazy dialogue and material. The tagline is, it's exactly what you think it is. And, you know, it is exactly what you think it is. It's like when you think, if, even if you've never seen a slasher movie before, if someone says slasher movie and you have a little bit of a connotation of what that means, pieces to me is the embodiment of that. It's something, it's like some sort of uh, elemental platonic ideal form of the slasher movie to me. And the fact that it actually exists is, it's just incredible. And, you know, it's to me, it would be something to actually strive to to try to create. How can you create something so, I don't want to say earnest, but, you know, how you can make something so, you know, just it is what it is. But it's also just incredibly funny and uh, amazing. And if you look at it, there's actually two, if you have like the Blu-ray, you know, there's two different versions. There's a Spanish version, which is basically all J.P. Simon's, you know, creation. Uh, yeah, basically his final product, but there's also the American version, and there are some, there's a few differences, not so much with the the film itself, but with the dialogue. Obviously, the uh, if you know if you'll notice right away that the music is different. The Spanish version has this almost silent movie score of a uh, piano, and of course the American version has just this amazing uh, mixture of from previous horror movies taken and put into. Uh, this film, the music is credited to Cam. It's like, who is Cam? It's, uh, it's as opposed to Can. Can is a di- totally different band, but Cam is actually this Italian 
uh, licensing company, I guess, and they would basically have this library of music. And if you, you know, gave them the music, they'd give you the music and then they'd make a soundtrack out of the movie. Basically, that's usually how their deals went, something like that. And so this is the, for the U.S. version or international version, perhaps, uh, they use, they put in this awesome music, which uh, the director really didn't like. And the director really had nothing, he says he had nothing to do with the American version. So all the new dialogue, which it, there are some, a few significant changes uh, for it. And it's always, they always change it for the crazier. We'll discuss, as the scenes come up, we can discuss uh, what's been changed. But the dialogue always gets changed uh, for the crazier. So I'm assuming without positively knowing that this, this Dick Randall, the producer, is the guy who is responsible for the final product of the American version. Uh, he worked on the screenplay as well, so you might well say his vision is kind of sandwiched into the final product. And uh, who is Dick Randall? Uh, he was born uh, Irving Rubin. Uh, if you've seen this guy, he's actually often appears in some of his films. Uh, he He's this weird uh, kind of shady producer. He's He's exactly what you think he is. Uh, exactly. And if you've ever seen this movie, there's one he did, uh, Challenge of the Tiger, uh, which was st starred Bruce Lee, who will make a cameo here in Pieces, which we'll talk about. Now, that is a crazy film in itself. It's like a international spy, uh, world-ending uh, disease-type thing with just lots of craziness in uh, martial arts, kung fu, Definitely check out Challenge of the Tiger if you if you want to uh, see a crazy kung fu movie. Uh, he also made, Dick Randall also produced one called uh, Don't Open Till Christmas, which is directed and starring Edmund Purdom, who will be the dean in this movie. So there's a lot of overlap in the uh, Dick Randall universe, I guess you would say, the Dick Randall continuous universe. And of course, the crown jewel is, of course, pieces. So let's not waste any more time. Let's talk about this excellent, amazing film. So we've got our cold open. We're opening on Boston in 1942. There's this nice two-story house. It looks like it's in some quaint little uh, neighborhood. and But there's some creepy music going on that tells us this movie pieces. There might be something strange going on in it. And uh, apparently there's this creepy music and there's a kid and he's reciting the Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme. He's wearing this strange short pants get up and uh, I, I guess he's like what 11 or 12 or something like that now he's he's on the ground he's working on this puzzle is, is what it turns out he's he's uh, doing here and uh, his super ego I mean his mom ends up uh, opening the door she peeks in she's all smiling she's very proud of her son so she decides to walk in and see what he's doing She's wearing this blue floral dress, not looking exactly uh, like a, uh, someone from the 40s, but uh, there's apparently there's going to be someone who looks even like they're even less from the 40s coming up. Uh, because she, when she looks over the kid's shoulder, what does she see? She sees, she's very horrified. So she's so horrified the music has this discordant tone uh, uh, hits. Just as she sees that there's this very nude woman that's the subject of the puzzle, she looks like she's from 1978. She does not exactly look like she's from the 40s herself. But uh, nevertheless, whether the mom is mad that he's dealing in pornography or that he's a time traveler uh, collecting these uh, rowdy puzzles, uh, she gets mad. And, uh, of course, what does she do? First thing, first instinct, just slap the kid 
across the back of the head. What are you doing? Oh, and a quick note, if if you if you've ever seen the movie Pod People, which uh I think was the next movie that uh, JP Simon made, it uses the same room. Anyway, uh she gets she smacks the the kid and she's she's at a 10. She immediately hits the hits the roof. It's kind of like she's uh Norma Bates from Psycho. She has a real problem with her son uh going down this road, which of course, uh I mean, imagine imagine what a tough time she'd have now. It might be it might be for the best that what happened to her happened, but uh, she's yelling at him. She's also got a lot of issues with her husband, her his dad, because uh, she's uh, saying you're going to end up just like your dad doing this. I could tell you a few things about this uh, guy. She picks there's a, a frame there's a one of those framed uh, pictures of of his dad on on his uh, dresser that uh, he picks up, she picks it up and she smashes it into the into the mirror. Uh, this is a very strange set up there's a lot of like kids toys and stuff there's also like uh, butterflies on the wall you gotta wonder what dr Lecter would make of this uh symbolism and uh also what would jocks lacan think of uh the mother smashing the mirror with the father's picture uh, which will be a recurring memory in the killer's mind as the movie progresses but she's very adamant that this is going to be a no fap house and uh you know he's he's not going to become one of these uh, filthy perverts like his dad so she tells him to go get a plastic bag to burn this which i think i mean i'm sure you could get paper bags in the 40s a lot quicker and they would be um invented for one thing and two uh less toxic to burn but uh anyway she's she's just thinking on the fly um and so she starts looking through all this stuff trashing everything she finds mag porno mags right away. She looks through his his uh you know like a toy chest is what they're called. It's been so long since I've been a kid. I don't remember all the terminology, but uh, she looks through the toy chest. There's a tricycle in there for one thing. That's kind of weird, but also uh, there's more puzzles, just kind of random puzzle pieces. Which who knows what that those are for? What ladies attached to that? Um, you know, she shares with Norma Bates, uh, like once she gets mad, she just starts swearing a blue streak, uh, at this kid. And, you know, you got to wonder what exactly, you know, is it between her and the husband that, that made her so uh, angry? Uh, there's also, it's interesting. There's a new England Patriots pennant on the wall, which, uh, of course this is, if this is 1942, the Boston Patriots didn't form until 1959, little nerd, nerd trivia for you there. And uh, if that's not weird enough, there's also a touch-tone phone, which uh, she should have used that to uh, buy herself a clue, because when she turns around, the kid has got his contingency plan in case this happened. He's got an axe, and he starts swinging the blade right into the skull, wax, wax the old mom uh, quite a few times. And uh, so, I mean, after that, he just starts finishing the puzzle, because, I mean, he was really on a roll there he got a lot of pieces lined up and i know this always happens to me whenever i'm in the middle of something like this what happens the doorbell of course there's this woman who at least looks like an appropriate 40s woman she's ringing the doorbell uh, i guess she's a visitor we never really established exactly who she is if she's a neighbor or a relative or what but uh he's too busy uh he finishes the puzzle and then he's like sawing up the uh the body so he can't really answer um, he's just covered in blood. The whole set is just covered in blood and some time pa must pass because he's done with the puzzle. Uh, he's about to call it a day. Maybe 
but but when the the sirens start, the lady has returned, and now she's got two cops with her. Two very weird cops, one with the awesome uh, Super Mario mustache, and they force themselves in, and you know they, they get up to his room. They're horrified when they see all the blood. Uh, one cop I don't really trust. Uh, he's been on the force very long because he's like, this is like a slaughterhouse. I hope it was just an animal. Yeah, I'm really an animal in the upstairs bedroom in a house with uh, two people missing. So good luck with that. Uh, so the cops are touching pretty much everything in in the place. They open the one of the closets and they, that's when they find the mom's head. And the lady calls her Mrs. Reston. So apparently this is the Reston residence. And then in the second closet, because there's a door like right next to that one, it's a very weird setup in this place. Uh, that's where the kid's at. And his apparently his name's Timmy, because that's what the lady calls him. And he's he's like, uh, he's a little crazy at this point, because he's just witnessed his mom uh, decapitated. Of course, you know, failing to mention that he was the one who did it. He's saying it's a big man. And then he's also asking where mommy is. So he's a good actor right away. This guy, he he knows what he's doing. Uh, the the lady says, well, there's uh, his father. He's because the the kid. OK, the kid runs out, uh, hugs one of the cops uh, covered in blood. It's very touching. And uh, the lady's the lady says, well, I mean, we got to do something with this kid. Uh, he has an aunt across the street or whatever. But uh, his, and his dad's away with the Air Force. It's very interesting because in the Spanish version, she says his father died in uh, in Europe during the war. So none of this really matters, but it's just worth noting that there's that change there that apparently in the Spanish version, they um, really put the fine point on the fact that this kid has no dad to grow up with and that he uh, died in uh, World War Two. But uh, anyway, that's basically your cold open that's going to set everything in motion when we get to the credit scene the credits are awesome it has this very slow creeping uh bass heavy music uh over these credits with like the the funny bloody lettering and on the, on the left hand of the of the screen is this knife it looks like a very cheap very bobo version of like maybe the halloween jack-o'-lantern uh, over there i mean it's a little bit of a link so after this awesome uh credit sequence we're going to return to reality this is 40 years later back to 1982 now this is if you think about it that's really going to cut down on the suspects there's really actually there's only only one that would really fit the time frame but never mind uh the killer's gonna basically awaken uh he's we get this uh again some awesome droning music the killer he dresses up in black he's he's basically basing his look on the shadow and uh he he still he basically pulls out of his drawer. It's not the exact same drawer that he had when he was a kid, but it's very similar. And he pulls out this box, and in the box, it's the original dress, the blue flowered print dress of the of the mom, still with the blood on it, her bloody shoes. And uh, he starts taking them out, and he's remembering what happened. And at the bottom of this box, you'll see that there's a picture of the mom, still not looking like she's from the forties. And there's a big red X through her, over her face. So you got to wonder exactly what's going on in this crazy person's uh, mind at this time. You know, what's he going to do? What's he going to do with all these flashbacks he's having? Well, we're going to have to put that on hold because we're going to cut to the skater girl. This might be the original skater girl. 
Uh, she's not very good at it, but we're in the, on some sort of college campus of some time. It's Boston. I mean, I guess we got to assume, because everyone's so smart in this movie, that this is Harvard. This is a tale of Harvard. Uh, as this girl is skating across the campus, and uh, she, like I say, she's kind of a beginner, but she's not giving up. She's the only person doing this, by the way. Everyone else is just walking around. And uh, this is a very bad time for her to be doing this, to be learning her... Uh, or skateboarding, because at this time, the Mazzello and O'Donnell Glass Company, venerable Mazzello and O'Donnell Glass Company of Boston van pulls up, and uh, the, these guys are unloading this giant sheet of glass, uh, this glass mirror, um, pretty much Bugs Bunny style, like you would see in any Merry Melodies cartoon. They're going to be trying to get this thing across the street. And of course, here comes this uh, stupid broad... She she sees this these guys about a block away, and she cannot stop, uh, fall off or jump off or change direction to save her life, literally, because she goes crashing right through the mirror. And they throw in, for good measure, a little flashback with the mom breaking the mirror from the opening, the cold open as well. So apparently, what what happened here? Because the, I mean, is this a is this a dream? What this has of no absolutely no consequence. Uh, we'll figure this out very soon but anyway whatever it is it must totally trigger the killer once more because he takes out another box this one has the puzzle now he's got the puzzle he's he's really holds on to stuff so he starts uh pouring out the pieces and then he starts working it and he constructs just the head uh just head uh just put the head in uh so Again, you have to ask, what happened? Why did this scene happen? I think this might have been an insert. They might have made the movie and then decided, oh, we need a little bit more time, more uh, one more scene to fill out the uh, runtime. Because in the next scene, which would probably be the first scene, uh, you've got that gr- the skater girl apparently totally unharmed. Uh, now she's just lounging out on the lawn. It's a beautiful day. She's just uh, on her laying on her stomach, studying. Uh, probably Shakespeare or something, or phys- or you know astrophysics or whatever, and uh, just at that moment, from behind her where there's a big hedge, a chainsaw starts up, and she's just like, oh great! And she turns, she says to the guy who's you see you see the guy for like a split second, and his face is totally covered up uh, with like a goggles and a mask and everything, and uh, she says, are, are you going to be long? If so, I'll move somewhere else. And she and he's like just a minute ma'am and she's like okay like a like a real smarty and uh that she she doesn't even really have time to regret her decision because um immediately the chainsaw is on her neck severs her head right there head goes flying her her body is convulsing on the ground pouring out blood it's a great effect a little little goofy but also extremely bloody and awesome and it really sets the tone for the whole movie and uh, why the movie's so good now we've really got a movie going because uh, who shows up to investigate the crime? But it's it's Lieutenant Bracken and Sergeant Holden. We're gonna meet them in the dean's office in the secretary's antechamber. They uh, they're talking to the secretary, and he's in. You know that you figure the dean would be running out to meet them and walking them around, and you know meeting him at the crime scene and everything. No, he's like no, he's chilling in his own office and just making them wait like real assholes. And uh, Bracken, not really establishing his dominance, he's just like, oh, that's okay, man, we'll wait. We're used to waiting. It's okay. Like, this is really gonna, 
set the tone for his uh, shitty investigation that's about to happen. I, you know, I've I've got a few criticisms for this guy, uh, but anyway, apparently the dean he finally appears when he when he feels like it, and uh, ushers him in. They're going to discuss uh, this this murder that just happened on his campus, which he's going to register as a kind of a just an annoyance. It's an annoyance. The whole thing's just going to be an annoyance to the dean. Uh, meanwhile, even stranger, we're going to go into the hallways of uh, one of the the halls, you know, where the, the learning happens. I never went to college. Anyway, there's these five kids. They're smoking a joint in the hallway. Apparently, this is what happens in uh, college. And the the kid starts off. He's like, did you hear? And he, I'm expecting, did you hear there was a murder? No. It's, did you hear? <laughs> there's a waterbed in the training room. Like, okay, I don't know. I don't really know what a waterbed purpose is, but you know, I guess it's grant money. You got to spend it or you'll lose it. So they got a waterbed and that's the only thing these kids are worried about. And uh, this beautiful woman who's uh, very free with herself, she takes the joint and as she's smoking, she's saying, uh, the greatest thing in the world is smoking pot and fucking at the water waterbed at the same time. I wish I could. I wish I could get quotes right, but I never do. Anyway, that's basically what she said. And uh, if you've ever, if you're ever into uh, obscure uh, industrial bands, there's a band called Dead World, and they sampled that track. And uh, I would in high school, I would listen to it, and I, I never knew where that came from. And then when I finally heard. When I saw this movie and heard it, it was like, wow, another another piece of the puzzle, piece of the puzzle uh, falls into place. So, you know, this is a movie that has all kinds of reverberation through all, all forms of art, including podcasting now. But uh, the waterbed talk, it dies down once they finally see a new target, which is Professor Brown. You gotta, you gotta see this guy, Professor Brown. It's the great Jack Taylor from a lot of Euro horror, a lot of Jess Franco movies and stuff. Uh, you, you'll see, you'll see this guy. Uh, he was in Conan the Barbarian, even, which was shot in Spain, so it makes sense. Uh, he's an American guy, but he moved to Spain for uh, his career. So there you have it. Uh, he's a great guy. He looks a bit like Ron Burgundy here. I mean, if you put him side by side with Ron Burgundy, it might not look so great, but uh, he definitely gives you the Ron Burgundy feel, and he definitely feels like a weird dude. And uh, these kids, they notice it, and uh, they kind of make fun of him a little bit, which is, of course, sad. So that... Uh, beautiful hobag. She walks over to Professor Brown and says, uh, Professor, you've got to help me. Apparently this, this is a professor is a guy who teaches anatomy class. And she's like, uh, where are the pectoral muscles? Uh, my friends say mine are funny. And of course he says, uh, I, I assure you, you have nothing to worry about. And she really doesn't. She's got a, a wonderful uh, area. And she and he points to where it is and just a big jokey moment once uh other kids start laughing brown he's like he's had enough of this and he just he's like i'm gonna go participate in this murder investigation now if you don't mind so he goes and walks off he walks to uh the dean's office obviously he meets the secretary and uh the secretary a very good character not a great character but pretty good her name's grace and she's using the intercom to spy on what's going on and uh she says uh you know they think it's one of the staff as Professor Brown comes in, which, you know, if Professor Brown is one of the staff, so maybe you shouldn't say that, lady, since you don't know what's going on. And this this guy is kind of creepy and suspicious looking. And uh, Professor Brown, he has some pretty great lines. He's like, oh, I see you have some inside information. Well, we're all curious. And then 
what makes them think that? So immediately, he's a suspect. It's a very suspicious thing to say. But uh, she starts going on about, like, well, why is the head missing? And then he gets bored. A lot of people sometimes just get bored with murder all of a sudden in this film, which is a pretty cool direction. But uh, anyway, he gets buzzed in. He goes in to talk with the, the detectives and, and the dean. Apparently, the, the dean also the dean's name is Dean Folly, which we're going to learn that he might have changed his name uh, for no specific reason. But to change it to Folly, that's kind of weird. But uh, Dean asks him to um, show, show the cops around uh, the campus. And Professor Brown's like, do I have to? I mean, I don't have any classes, but I don't want to do it. But uh, anyway, he agrees to. So the dean asks, uh, could you we keep this quiet by any chance? Uh, I don't really want this news getting out. It could really damage the school. It's kind of like the, his, his uh, we can't close the beaches moment for, uh, from Jaws. And this is what's so great about it is that you would most time this twist would just fall flat and be really stupid. But for here, it just worked so great. Because Detective Bracken, the wonderful Christopher George, he says, uh, sure, no problem. Uh, at this point, it wouldn't help our investigation either. <laughs> and that's what's so great about it, is that, you know, they're writing about detectives. They probably never, they obviously did absolutely no research on this whatsoever. And, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, it wouldn't really help us to, you know, let get the word out that there's someone creepy on campus. And, you know, we definitely don't want to interview people uh, just to see who might saw what, when, where, uh, it wouldn't help our investigation. Just show us, just show us the classrooms. You know, that's really going to help us is what, what we need right now. So, you know, and with that said, uh, nowadays you could definitely believe, of course, the authorities don't care about the public and public safety. They just, it's cover your own ass, help out whoever, uh, can pay off or whatever. So in a weird way, as incompetent as it seems, it's a perfect uh, demonstration of what really happens in the real world, kind of symbolically. So that's pretty great. So the two detectives are going to go off with Professor Brown, the kind of suspicious, taciturn Professor Brown. This was the guy, uh, uh, the dean had been kind of casting suspicion on him early, uh, telling the detectives, you know, he, he lives alone with his mother. He's unmarried. So uh, he's definitely trying to give him this, these Norman Bates vibes, which... He totally uh, kind of leans into him, Professor Brown does. So um, the the uh, they lead him. He leads him right around into his classroom, which is like this anatomy uh, anthropology type classroom. There's skeletons and anatomical charts, and there's skulls everywhere. And of course, whenever you, you're you're guiding two homicide detectives around investigating an unsolved murder, the first thing you want to do is. Uh, Show him your collection of skulls, which uh, Professor Brown promptly does. He says, "This one, here's one. This is of a 16-year-old girl. Uh, look, just probably just like the victims. And um, so the pr- Lieutenant Bracken's like, who gave that to you? And he's like, oh, a student, which is kind of a weird thing to begin with. But uh, so Bracken wants to know who the student is. He's like, oh, I'll have to look it up. It's He was back in the 60s when he, when he was my student. So... Um, He's like, okay, but they're basically, they're going to, Bracken's going to take down every piece of evidence he can, no matter how minute it might be. Uh, you know, he's going to overlook some pretty big uh, things in the course of uh, the investigation, we'll soon learn. But 
for now, he's just going to follow up on every little lead, and which surprises Brown. He's like, well, is, you think it could be that that guy? And he's, and this is when uh, Holt, Sergeant Holden speaks up. Sergeant Holden, played by the great Frank Brana, he's kind of got the stoic Leslie Nielsen vibe to him. And he says one of his f- first great lines, which is, who knows? At this point, we're just buying clothes without labels and trying them on for size. I can never really get his cadence down, so you really have to, you have to hear him say it. But it's a pretty great line. And, um, you know, Bracken, he's about to um, take the rest of the tour when he says, you know what, I'm just going to check out the coroner's report. Uh, you know, there might be some big re- revelations there, you know, that can be learned from, a, you know, like maybe what she died from. You know, she's missing a head. Who knows? Uh, so after that, we're going to learn that there's a, there's a, jan- uh, not, a not necessarily a janitor, more like a, a groundskeeper. And this guy is amazing. His name's Willard. And he wears like this uh, light blue denim getup. He's got this, he's about 6'5 or so. He's, he's crazy. I mean, he, the actor played uh, Bluto in the Popeye uh, movie. So, I mean, this gives you a sense of what this guy looks like. And he's he's basically sawing some branches kind of randomly. And uh, he's he's got the yellow chainsaw. So you got to wonder, I mean, did he get the chainsaw back or is this is there just like a big closet full of these yellow chainsaws? We don't know. But uh, if there is, they should definitely uh, keep it under lock and key. And uh, after he cuts those two branches, I mean, he's like, "Wow, what would I do without this chainsaw?" He's just like lovingly caressing it. Uh, looking at it, the only the only time he doesn't look without a pure hatred and contempt at something is when he's looking at this chainsaw. And uh, by the way, this guy, his name is Paul Smith. You'll you'll recognize him from many things. He was in Midnight Express. He was also one of the Harkonnens in Dune. And I didn't recognize him at first when I was watching Dune, but then he gave someone the stink eye, and it's like, oh shit, it's that it's Willard. Sure enough, it was. So that's how you can notice him by uh, his just very powerful stink eye he can give people. Uh, but basically he's just another red herring or is he, is he, he's basically this, uh, creepy suspect as himself. In fact, there's two people, this is a creepy campus altogether. There's, uh, th- these two young people, uh, doing it under a tree. You can tell that they're, they're doing more than just kissing there, uh, expressing love. And, uh, Willard, I mean, he's kind of into it. It seems like he's, uh, but is he is he into it because he wants to uh, see it or because he wants to punish something? We don't really know. Uh, he's just a creepy guy. But uh, Dean Foley, he meets him out there. It's one of the few times you see the Dean outside uh, when he's talking to Willard here. And he's going to ask him, well, when are you, when's your job going to be done? Which, you know, if you ask me, a groundskeeper, it's not really a, like a, just a one-time project kind of job. It seems like something you would, a continuous thing, which is probably what Willard wants and he he may have nowhere to go because he's like uh you know the deal I made with your secretary was I'll just uh, I'll do everything and you don't have to pay me by the hour just uh, pay me one lump sum or whatever and the dean he wants to get across to Willard that you know what I really would like for you to move on if possible and he's but of course he dresses it up and saying well it's better for you you can take another job get get paid to get paid more money uh, if you do the job quickly and move on. And Willard takes this hint and says, okay, sure enough, I'll do as fast as I can. And then the Dean walks away and he gives him a stink eye and you know, he's just going to hang around as long as he can. It's like, you just say, 
sure thing, boss, and then go right back to what you were doing. That's the way to get things done. Now we're going to go back to the puzzle. Uh, apparently, the plot's about to thicken because uh, now that the head's been procured, the, the guy starts putting together the torso. Now we're going to get the piece of the torso. And so we're going to go through the library. This is where we're going to start. We're, we've definitely got killer's POV. This is handheld camera, and uh, the killer's obviously watching all the people studying and looking for books. It's a very nice library, by the way. And this is where we're going to meet Kendall. Kendall, our main character, our hot, sexy stud Kendall, the, the ladies' man, the man about campus. And uh, you look at this guy, he looks a little bit like Cousin Larry from Perfect Strangers, but we're not ableists, we're not lookists. We were told Kendall is a charismatic sex machine. We're just going to run with it. And uh, nevertheless, it's still a little bit off-putting when like this totally hot blonde sitting uh, across the table from him throws him a note. She's wearing this very awesome red sweater that says USA on it. It's very convincing that we are in the USA. And uh, it reach, and he reads the note, and it says uh, she wants to do it in the pool, underwater to meet her at the pool. And uh, so Kendall's like, uh, all right. He gives her a little signal. I think he's signaling her like one hour or something like that. And he goes back to his studying because, you know, uh, maybe that might be the secret to things is just not caring too much. Like, don't be too eager. That might be a good strategy for people. So uh, he just takes the note and uh, crumples it up and throws it. it throws it behind him. It's supposed to be go in the waste can, but it bounces out. And that's when we realize that the killer POV uh, moves a little bit and the killer takes his gloved hand, meaning he's in the library full of people in full killer uniform uh, and picks up this uh, this note. So now he knows what's going on. I mean, it would be impossible to follow this girl if he wants to kill her and figure out, you know, where she's going to go. But he's got to have this note to uh, confirm that uh, where she'll be. So she walks away. She has these glittery jeans on, by the way, as well. So she's she's just a vision. She's a vision of loveliness. We follow this uh, torso girl, future torso girl, uh, into the hallway where she meets up with some of her friends. And again, the girls just can't stop talking about Brown. Professor, I mean, I know Professor Brown is a very interesting character, but ladies, please, let's, let's show some restraint. But they're talking about him like, first they're calling him gay, and then they're saying, uh, yeah, I'd, like to make it with him so it's just it's just like uh you know these flighty college girls i mean who knows what who knows what they'll be up to next but uh basically that scene really has not a whole lot to do with the plot and the, everyone just kind of goes goes on their way and so cue the sleazy saxophone music and we're in this pool this is definitely not some sort of public pool this is an indoor pool with like these windows this is definitely a private residence of some rich persons kind of like you notice oh wait yeah this whole college is just some pretty much there's few exterior shots of some sort of professional building and the rest of this is just some big mansion which is which actually works really great i think it's a, a great um aesthetic that this this film has uh so she she goes in, the sleazy sax music's playing. She's going to strip down. She's got these white boots on, like the victim in Bloody Moon, which would uh, was, like I think, a year earlier. Jess Franco movie, pretty good. And uh, she takes off her top, and she ties this red ribbon around her hair. I think it's to keep the hair out of her face while she's swimming, but 
Basically, it's just another poor choice this girl makes because as soon as she jumps in the pool, the thing falls around her neck. And uh, she, does, she does not notice that the killer has just snuck in to the pool. It kind of sidles along the, the wall. He's got to get his uh, implement of destruction, which in this case is going to be uh, one of those pool skimmer things. And, you know, a lot of people are going to make fun of this scene. I've, I've listened to a few other podcasts where they uh, make fun of this scene. And true, true enough, it does seem like she could get away from this attack a little bit uh, easier than what actually happens. But apparently from the director's uh, explanation was that this was being filmed in December. It was very cold, so they couldn't get all the shots they needed. I mean, who's to say? But basically, that that's his excuse. Because uh, she's swimming in the pool. They actually do get a lot of coverage of her just swimming in a pool, so apparently they had some amount of time. But uh, the guy in his uh, killer uniform, he's got this, uh, this net, this butterfly net pool skimmer thing, and uh, he just hooks it on her, on her head, which, of course, she could pretty much get out of instantly but instead maybe maybe she thinks that this is Kendall and this is some sort of kink thing they're doing uh you know once once love and commitment goes out of the picture you just got to get freakier and freakier I'm just telling you right now don't go down that road uh but your your grave wax tip of the day but anyway uh whether she's participating in her demise or not we can't fully know but he yanks her out of the out of the pool and then he goes for his chainsaw, which I didn't, I don't, I guess he brought it in with him. She's acting like she's uh, disoriented and out of breath. I mean, I think you could still just roll over back into the pool and get away, but she doesn't do that. She just kind of arches her back like she's on that, uh, on the Cars Candio album. And um, because of that, the saw gets her. She gets uh, sawed right, right up. So uh, no more torso for you. Your torso belongs to someone else now. What do you think about that? Now this next scene, this next scene, this is damn sure one of the craziest parts of the movie, uh, because just it's weird. Let's, let's talk about it. See if we can figure this goddamn thing out. Because next, what we have, we have this new character named Myron, Myron Schwartz, and he walks into the library, and he sees one of the the girl's friends. This is kind of this uh, poofy-haired girl with a kind of a bad disposition. Her name's Francine. And uh, so Myron walks over and asks her, Francine where uh, Kendall is. And she just kind of like points him out. Kendall's just over in the corner there. And so uh, he's like, thanks. Uh, by the way, uh, are you doing anything later? And she just gives him this uh, go to hell glare. And uh, this is one of now we realize Myron's got great lines because he says, uh, so I'm slayed by your withering look. Who gives a shit? And, which, of course, is a great attitude. And so he finds Kendall like five feet away and he he gives Kendall this note and he says, uh, Grace, remember Grace, the dean's secretary, uh, asked me to give this to you. I've been looking for you for 30 minutes. Where you been? And, you know, it's like, well, hasn't he been in this library this whole time? Just making this uh, girl wait for him. But uh, anyway, he reads the letter. We don't he do, we don't realize we don't get to know what he the letter says, but he just gives him a puzzled look. And uh, Myron's like, well, tell me what's going on. Am I the bearer of bad news? And uh, Kendall says, no, nah, it's okay. And uh, Myron's like, great, I'm too young to die. Another great Myron line there. And he walks off. And uh, we have no idea what's going on, basically. We get a quick ca uh, catch up with the killer. He's dragging 
the a bag with obviously with the torso in it into his home it's got a very nice stately appointed home and it apparently also has a walk-in freezer so that's where he's already got the head in there and he's bringing in the torso so yeah we also learn he has very heavy breathing like he starts breathing heavy um I guess it's supposed to be like a sexual perversion thing. It just sounds like he needs uh, medical attention. But uh, that's just the one little uh, interstitial they put in. Because next we got to find the, the next body, or at least the parts of it. But uh, Willard, he walks into the pool and uh, he notices <laughs> Kendall's like freaked out. He's like s- s- pressed against the wall. He sees uh, Willard and then he runs out. So we're already we're, we're halfway into the scene already. And then Willard walks over by the windows. There's, it's very important this location here. He finds this bloody chainsaw on the windowsill. And he's not sure what he's... He's not exactly sure what this object is. So he has to touch it. And of course he's touching it. Getting his fingerprints all in the blood. He gets blood on his hand. It takes him a second. He's got to look at his hand. See what is this red liquid on it. And then he gets this oh shit look on his face. It's pretty great. It's great with the facial expressions. So he's going to rush out of there, I guess. I'm, I'm sure he would have just walked away, washed his hands, never spoke of this, never mentioned it again. But instead, uh, we've got the cops rushing in with Kendall. They're going to fight this guy. Of course, this Willard is like 6'5 or whatever he is. And he starts throwing people left and right. What's Kendall going to do? He's got like a 2x4, which he breaks over uh, his back. And he's throwing cops in the pool. And Sergeant Holden is there. And basically, Holden's got to pull his gun on him. Like, fun's fun but you got to stop now or I'm going to blow your head off is basically what Holden's saying to him. So they've got a suspect in custody. We never get to see the interrogation of Willard, which would have been awesome, but that's just something the movie leaves to uh, our imagination. So instead, we're just going to have cut to the, the we're going to keep with the crime scene, but now it's established as a crime scene with the you know cops on the perimeter guarding and the, um, the the medical guy is coming in everything's wrapped in plastic now the chainsaw is over by the pool next to the body with uh you know plastic underneath it and everything every body part is individually wrapped in plastic um the guys come in with the stretcher they put one arm gingerly onto the stretcher and then just leave the rest lying around actually there's also a photographer taking pictures and that is the director himself jp simon uh, who he was also an avid uh camera collector as well as being, of course, a, a movie director. So uh, it might even be a camera from his own collection. We don't know. But uh, Bracken's overseeing this from, like, the other side of the pool. He's uh, waiting for Professor Brown. Now, again, this is just great police work here because he says to, um, well, Brown says, what a job you people have. The public doesn't know how awful this is. It's like, well, the public would know if people would tell, like, there's a killer on the loose, but... We're still going with the, this needs to be kept uh, silent. So Lieutenant Bracken, he's like, first of all, he, he says, Hank, bring it over here. And yeah, nothing is brought. No one brings any, anything anywhere. Brown goes over to the body parts uh, because Bracken says, I don't want to wait for the coroner's opinion. So could you give me yours? Could this have been done with a chainsaw like that one there? Could those body parts have been cut up with the bloody chainsaw right next to it? I don't know. But uh, anyway, Professor Brown's going to summon up all his uh, learning and skills to uh, evaluate the situation. And uh, in doing so, he touches the saw. He bends down and touches the saw. And Bracken's like, you idiot. 
don't do that. You could have damaged some evidence. First of all, Willard already touched it. Second of all, it was by the window. It's already been moved. Everything's fucked up on this thing already. Plus, you're in charge, Bracken, and you suck. But uh, anyway, Professor Brown, he just... He lets... He lets his cool, passive-aggressive, uh, taciturn nature tell a story. He says, um, oh, I'm terribly sorry, but uh, I'm even a layman can see that uh, it was done with this. Which is interesting. It's, the Spanish version's a little bit different, Going just going by the subtitles. He says, I guarantee it was done by this saw, or a similar one. It's like, okay, it was done by that saw, come on. No. Uh, but anyway, Bracken's like, that's all, thanks. Uh, you're welcome. It was very tense. You're welcome. And uh, basically nothing is accomplished, which is uh, what will happen throughout the whole movie. The rest of the coroner team, I guess they're about to hit a lunch break or something, because then instead of uh, taking the body parts one by one, they just scoop them all up in one sheet and uh, dump them on the the stretcher. And at this point, uh, Sergeant Holden showed up. He sidles his way up to uh, Bracken. So they're going to have to go see the dean. Uh, one of many interviews. They walk out into the hall, and there's this figure dressed in black. He dashes through the door behind him, and they turn around, and and uh, Holden's like, why are you so jumpy? And uh, like, ah, forget about that suspicious figure that just ran away. It must just be my nerves getting the best of me about this creepy uh, case. You know, it's a little creepy. You know, all these women being murdered and having their body parts severed. But uh, Holden has this wonderful detective uh, instinct when he says, I wonder what he's doing with all the pieces. And, um, you know, Bracken's like, well, that's what I'm referring to. He's really creepy. And so he gets the, the uh, idea that they need some undercover agents to uh, prowl around and see if they can uh, figure out, uh, make the killer make a false move and they can jump on him. And then Holden says, girls, you mean? And he's like, yes, of course, that's what he seems to be after. So we really learn from that exchange right there why one's the lieutenant and the other's just the sergeant. But uh, they get this uh, old grizzled Irish cop to come round up uh, Kendall and Myron. And then, uh, of course, Holden and Bracken, they head up to the Deans uh, for another meeting. And uh, this is when you really learn how great a detective uh, Lieutenant Bracken is when he says... Um, I think the killer is someone on or around the campus. I don't know how many years he'd been on the force for him to be able to intuit that kind of insight into this, uh, you know, one-of-a-kind crime. But sure enough, I mean, that's that will end up being the case. He nailed it right there, let me tell you. So uh, he then de- the dean is hesitant to say the least, of having uh, undercover uh, lady cops uh, patrol around. And he says, uh, that's asking a lot. And uh, Lieutenant Bracken, not noticing that this is in fact a suspicious request, says, um, well, you know, I, I really think we can catch the killer. He's going to kill again. I think we can catch him if uh, we, we do that. And, um, you know, the, the but, you know, there's no reason to suspect the dean of having any strange agenda beyond... Uh, just the um just the reputation of the school i mean i mean you know if you think about it he is the only person who's uh 50 something years old but anyway uh, we got to bring in kendall and myron to suss out what's going on here with this uh, letter writing business and so uh they they 
Kendall and Myron are walking up the stairs to the dean's office and uh, Myron's like, you know what? I don't think you're the killer. I have no reason to, to say say why, but I don't think that you did. But what? where were you those 30 minutes where I couldn't find you? And uh, Kendall says, you know, Alicia, that blonde in anthropology? So yes, he, he didn't have sex with that perfect tin in the pool because he was having sex with another blonde. Now that's, that's something. You can admire Kendall, but personally, I'm just glad that I didn't peak so early and uh, I might have had a lot of disappointment in life otherwise. Life can be very long, as you know. <laughs> he also at one point calls Myron Goggles, which is just a cool kind of nickname. Uh, so they get into the meeting and it's and it, they're trying to establish what's going on. Uh, they they want Kendall's side of the story, what Myron knows about this letter uh, the Grace, the secretary, is explaining, well, she found it on her desk, uh, and then she asked the dean what what would happen, and whenever it's time for the dean to explain himself, he's just, like, really annoyed by this. He's like, "Can do we really have to go through all this? Which, you know, I think the answer is yes, and um, Bracken, he, he invokes the, uh, the dead girl's parents. He says, why don't we ask those dead girl's parents if, if this is important? And the dean's like, oh, yes, yes, you're right. You know, it's like, maybe Bracken, maybe you should ask the, the parents uh, why you suck, you know, because you're terrible at this. You should obviously know who the prime suspect is from, from what's going on right now. Open your eyes, man. Uh, who am I kidding? I'm, I'm really glad that uh, he is the way he is. I, I accept him. And because of that, he made the best possible movie of all time. I think, frankly, I'm just coming to terms with this right now. Uh, but anyway, so Kendall is going to give his side of the story that he doesn't know why the girl, the dead girl, her name was Susan, why she would uh, use the their, the dean's office as a post office to give him this message. And, and that's when Bracken, again, with his world-weary expertise, says, no, son, that that note was written by the killer to make sure you didn't show up at the pool so he could kill kill the girl with that chainsaw. Probably, or one similar to it. Uh, but you did show up. Now, why'd you show up? And Kendall's only response is, well, I don't know. It just seemed kind of funny. I think it was probably the, the answer was you wanted to fuck two women the same day. But uh, but anyway, he's saying that he, he felt something funny, something suspicious might be going on. So uh, with that, Bracken kind of looks at him, gives him this look, and you kind of feel like maybe Bracken sees something in this kid. Maybe something of a younger Lieutenant uh, Bracken. Maybe this guy has some real potential, this curly-haired fuck here. Um, so he actually gives uh, Kendall his business card and says, I want to talk to you later when you feel better about something. Come down to the station. And uh, so basically from this another meeting where nothing is accomplished, Bracken learned nothing. Uh, he was the smartest one in the office, which is stupid, and the one big clue that was handed to him, he just totally ignores. Uh, so that's great. But uh, from there, we're going to hit a dance class. Now, what are 80s mem uh, movies uh, about? They're about uh, girls dancing, of course. This uh, hot blonde is leading a class of these uh, lithe... Uh, stretchy uh, 20-something-year-old co-eds and leotards dancing to this uh, very awesome, generic, uh, funky town song. It's, I, I was, I'm assuming that this song is called Running Around. That's the dominant lyrical 
repetition there running around. It may be my favorite song from this entire soundtrack, and I have four versions of the pieces soundtrack, and none of them have this song on there. It's not on there it's on YouTube, but it's just someone recording the actual movie, so you get the sound effects. There's not the full track. Which I you gotta have the full track, and I don't think anyone has it. So if anyone has this song, knows the title, the artist, or has a SoundCloud of it or whatever, that would be awesome to uh, clue us in and let us let us know. Bring the song out into the open. Now, of course, the killer is right there. Wherever there's going to be a lot of girls uh, dancing around, of course, the killer is going to want to be sizing up for his next uh, victim. So there's a convenient window into the door where he can look through. You can see his silhouette. He really is the shadow at this point. His shadow is uh, reflected through the the glass there. And he's got his eye on one of the girls in the front row. And, you know, far be it from me to second-guess this killer. He's done a great job so far. But if it were me, the girl I really like was the one right behind her. She's in, like, this black leotard, and she's got pigtails. She is definitely the hottest one of this group, from from, from my needs, anyway. So, you know, I, I mean, if it were me, I would I would just go up to this girl, if I were Kendall, or, and the killer, some sort of odd mixture of the two, and I would just be, baby, I don't even need to kill three other girls and stitch their body parts together. You're all I need to remind me of the time I killed my mother. Uh, and I think that would work. I think that would work on the, at least the girls in this world, uh, of the world of the movie. Perhaps not this fallen world, but, you know, what can you do? So the music stops, they finish their practice, and the girl that uh, the killer has his sights on uh, says to the teacher, who apparently was a Miss Barcelona, uh, this is, that's a big trivia point a lot of people mention, that uh, she's got to go use the John. So she's going to walk out, and she goes all over this building. This building is like this crazy contraption full of stairs, hallways, bending, turns, elevators, everything. She goes all around. The killer follows her kind of close behind. It's actually a pretty well-done this whole sequence is pretty well done uh and as building tension as she kind of like stumbles and like loses her shoe or whatever anyway she gets to the end of this interminable maze and uh, she gets to the door of the john and this girl like opens the door we don't see exactly what's going on it's like a big jump scare uh, and uh she's like oh you scared the shit out of me and then the other girl who was apparently leaving the bathroom walks her in i guess that's this just girl behavior who understands it but uh the killer he displays a little bit of self-restraint he's not a complete out of control compulsive killer because he's like you know what i'm gonna wait wait my time well i mean she's we'll find her again uh so after that the next scene is when kendall goes down to the station so he meets up with uh professor uh, lieutenant bracken and then lieutenant bracken shows him to a guy named dr jennings now this guy is a profiler. They very stress. They stress the word profile quite a lot, and I I know that obviously profiling was goes way back into police work, but uh, was this the first time the the actual use of the word profiler was used in a in a movie to explain what's going on? Because if so, it's kind of historic. I'm gonna have to check, uh, do a little. It's called we do a little googling to figure out what was the first use of a profiler in uh, popular entertainment. Pieces may need to get some credit for this, although the actual profiler in this movie does absolutely fuck all. He is completely worthless to this plot. Um, it's just kind of a fun scene. 
So he's introducing uh, Kendall to this profiler, and he says, sometimes these profiles are all we have to go on to uh, solve a case, especially when you will not uh, let people know what's going on and try to get interview witnesses and do detective work. Yeah, sometimes that's when you only have the profiles to work with. So he's going to interview Kendall to establish the profile of the killer. Now, you might think that this is just some sort of cover story so they can try to see if Kendall's lying or something. I don't think so. I think this is just uh, a lot of bullshit, basically. Maybe it is, in fact, uh, uh, Lieutenant Bracken's kind of grooming Kendall to be his assistant, possible son. We don't know. But uh, while they're having their interview, which we are not privy to, uh, Lieutenant Bracken walks out. And it's gonna, we're going to meet yet another main character. Oh shit, before I forget, there's a great line. When Ken, uh, Kendall's got a great line this time. When uh, he's introduced uh, that, he, that he wants to be interviewed, he says, Wait a minute, I don't know the killer. Or do I? It's one of those great little hammy lines that I love. So anyway, uh, Bracken goes out. He's going to talk to this other cop. This is Mary Riggs. Mary Riggs is a cop, and she's also a professional tennis player. Just remember that. And uh, he asks her, ask her if, he, if she wants the assignment to go undercover, which she jumps at the chance because she's a feisty hellcat who's been cooped up doing paperwork for the police force too long. And uh, now she's going to have something to do. She wants danger. She wants excitement. So she's going to be the tennis coach, which is a natural cover for her. So Kendall comes out. He's done with the interview. And uh, Bracken introduces him to uh, Riggs and then... Kendall leaves uh, into him, and then uh, Rick, Mary Riggs is she's a little mad at Bracken because like, why do you have to tell him about me? Like, do you have to tell me tell him about me? And uh, he's like, well, I mean, first of all, he knows who you are. He, you're a world famous tennis pro. Apparently, you were recognized by him. If you if you you're you're told she's he's, she's a cop, and then she's going to show up on campus. I mean, Kendall's a, a genius, almost a detective. He's almost on the force himself. He's going to figure it out, so I don't know why she's getting that mad. Maybe it's just a little game that these two play, uh, one-upsmanship. Uh, but, of course, maybe maybe he wouldn't recognize her based on this next character we meet. The, scenes, the scene is one of the most pointless scenes, and yet we, we learn uh, not only about Mary, but also about this next character who just kind of shows up in this uh, very strange police uh, office, this police station. The station has, like, <laughs> has a... Uh, a bunch of American uh, map maps of America just tacked up all over the um, the station. It's like this is this is why nothing gets done. All people care about is geography here. Uh, but this this next character, Sylvia Costa, she is uh, with the Boston Globe, and she is a reporter, one of the scum of the earth journalists, and she's trying to muscle her way in. Uh, and she wants to talk to Lieutenant Bracken about what's going on. These these rumors on campus, obviously Harvard. Uh, you know what's going on she wants to know and uh, Bracken he's he's going full force with the the dean's uh, plan to just deny everything and he's he's like genuinely stumped he's like what 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 rumors what's going on on campus I don't know anything and uh, she's like uh, the daily murders that are happening maybe and he's like the student body's imagination knows no bounds they they come up with this rumor every six months and he says, why don't you go talk to uh, my partner, Mary Riggs, over there? That's going to end up, it's not going to be important to the story, but it's important to me what's going to happen. Because 
just know that Sylvia Costa, first of all, she's got a cool leather jacket, and two, she sees Mary Riggs at that office. The next scene is the tennis match. So apparently Mary Riggs has been installed as the fake tennis coach, and she's already having this exhibition with this uh, the student, this lady. She's got very dark, wavy hair. They're playing tennis pretty basically. I don't know. She must be Mary Riggs must be such a great uh, and humble tennis pro that she's really holding back her moves. She's just kind of lobbing the thing back and forth. Uh, there's a big turnout. There's a bunch of people watching. One of them's the dean. Again, the dean showing himself outside. Uh, and he's, he's there's a lot of characters over there. There's uh, one one guy next to him looks like Freud. The other one looks like Einstein. It's, it's weird cast we've got here watching this uh, this display. But uh, basically, Mary's gonna lob the thing back and forth, back and forth they go. This is a lot of. This is kind of like the softball game in sleepaway camp. It's just like this sport that takes a lot of time for the scene. One, there's one shot where between Freud and Einstein, the dean is gone. So you wonder, like, was that something? But then they show him again, and he's back. So I think it's just a continuity error. But Mary kicks the kicks that girl's ass, and then walks. Um, and talks with the the dean so he invites her to tea in the faculty lounge and uh, he also learns from her that it's just her there's no one else is going to be undercover uh, they're, they're just too short a staff uh, it seems like there's a lot of people at that station but apparently there's not enough to go around for to investigate the daily murders at the at harvard here and just as they're about to the dean's about to turn up the creep factor i have a feeling with uh, miss riggs here who shows up but Sylvia Costa from the the reporter from the last scene? So, she comes up and she wants to talk to the dean. She's not getting any answers from the cops. She's going to talk to the dean Folly here, and ask about the murders that are happening. And uh, the, the dean again pleads ignorance, and uh, not not once does Costa recognize Mary Riggs. It would be so easy for her to throw the lies into the dean's face and say, well, what about her? She's a cop. She's an undercover cop. I just saw her at the police station yesterday. But she doesn't do that. She's just an idiot. She's an idiot like every other idiot in this idiot movie, uh, which is wonderful. Okay, so I'm looking at the time here. Apparently, this is going to go on for a very long time. We're not even quite halfway there with the whole thing. Uh, the upload speeds are not great as it is, so I'm going to upload this as in installments. I'll, I'll try to keep recording consistently, and we'll have the whole we'll have the whole piece of this podcast episode together. But uh, we will put them in pieces. Um, wow, that's that's a great. I I didn't realize how smart I was doing this, but yeah, we'll just have to do them in different parts. Uh, we'll bring you part two very soon. I'm really enjoying talking about this movie, but I've got to just, I got to get, I've got 23 years of things to say about this movie. So it's taking me a little while. I hope you're enjoying it. If you're not, who cares? Uh, I am. So I hope you'll still be around for part two of Pieces.